Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you. As always, this is episode 77. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. Um, I am getting back into the podcast swing of things. Uh, after taking a few weeks off, uh, we had a great episode last week with the uh, the incomparable Donnie Wynn. Uh, I'm going to be joined this week by just a sincerely nice human being uh, whose drumming is just phenomenal. And I'm so thankful for this show because this is someone that I would most likely not have met were it not for the drum shuffle. But uh, we're going to be joined by the great Josh Feldstein in just a few moments to talk about the Verve Jazz Ensemble. So please stay tuned after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great Josh Feldstein in just a moment. Um, it was so thankful to get him on the show. Uh, Josh is uh, the band leader for the Verve Jazz Ensemble. And again, this is a group that probably wouldn't have gone onto my radar were it not for the drum shuffle. Um, but we had just such a great conversation. But let me just give some stats to you here. Um, the Verve Jazz Ensemble has now released six albums. Five of those albums have gone top 10 on Jazz Week. Uh, their 2018 release, Connect the Dots, hit number one on that chart. And their newest album, Night Mode, uh, which was released uh, in uh, July, uh, has been in the top 10 on Jazz Week for the past five straight weeks. So this is, this is a group that is operating at a very high level. 
and just doing really cool stuff. Great, great records that everybody should check out. But as I got to know a little bit more about Josh and talking with him, uh, we just ended up having a great conversation. And I think there's a lot to learn from this. Uh, so please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Josh Feldstein. Hey, good afternoon, Josh. How's it going today? Hi, Jamie. Great to be on the drum shuffle. So nice to be here. Oh, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, hey, listen, uh, I just want to say this. I've been listening to the new record today, and man, what a fantastic band you have going. It's amazing. Thank you so much. That's it, very kind. Oh, it's it's just so good. It, re- it really is. Um, and, and we'll get into all that, but you know, traditionally here on the drum shuffle, what we like to do is is start at the very beginning. Um, I know you started playing drums at a very early age. Why don't you tell all of our listeners kind of, you know, where you grew up and how you got into drumming so young? Well, I was a New York City kid born in Manhattan, raised in Manhattan and Queens. And uh, when I was uh, four or five, I began uh, taking some music lessons at a Dalcro's uh, music school in, in the city. Uh, so I was exposed to piano and all the basic stuff that uh, the Dalcro's program offers. Uh, and uh, at about the age of 10 or 11, I started to focus more on drums. Uh, and for whatever the reason, uh, that instrument appealed to me. Uh, I began taking uh, private lessons when I was living in Queens, New York. And uh, I wasn't really thinking uh, more about it than just uh, you know, attending my, my weekly lesson and practicing on the pad and all of that until something happened. One of my instructors uh, at some point said to me, you know, Josh, your style reminds me of Gene Krupa. Oh, wow. And I said, Gene Krupa, my style reminds you of Gene Krupa. That's unbelievable. Who's Gene Krupa? (laughs) He's like, dude, you don't know who Gene Krupa is? is, Okay, I'm going to bring you a Gene Krupa record for your next lesson. I said, okay, great. So I listened to the music, and Jamie, I'm not kidding. I had no idea why he thought I sounded like Gene Krupa because I couldn't hear it. <laughs> but I said, if he thinks I sound like this guy, that's good enough for me. Yeah. And that was it. Oh, that's that's amazing, and that's that's a good line. That's you know that that was that was funny. Legitimately, I'm not just putting it on. That was <laughs> that was legitimately funny. Um. So uh, okay. So. Did you come from a musical household? Did your parents want you to take music lessons? Was there, you know, a big record collection in the house? Well, I'm going to disappoint you and say no. Okay. Uh, you know, my my mother uh, was an actress, and so she was obviously oriented towards the arts. Uh, my father worked in uh, television. So my uh, my parents were oriented towards media. Okay. Uh, so there was support, right? But in all the years that I practiced the drums uh, living in my home in, in Queens, nobody ever came into my room and said, would you play something for me? I never had that experience because <laughs> they could hear everything right through the walls. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I, didn't have, I didn't have that kind of support in that sense. But they were certainly uh, oriented towards the arts, and that obviously made a big difference. Okay. Well, now you you said this instructor kind of heard Gene Krupa. So I, I'm assuming, 
you know, and, and I, I don't want to date anybody here or anything like that, but it sounds to me like you were kind of going down the jazz path from the get go. I mean, I know it at at a certain time when you went to a a drum teacher, you know, it, it was okay, you're going to learn all of your rudiments. You're going to learn how to play on a snare drum, all that stuff. And a lot of those teachers were old jazz guys. So did, did you ever flirt with other styles besides jazz? Well, absolutely. As I was studying, they would introduce other types of, of books and other types of work that, that uh, uh, I, would, I would focus on. But what happened was that when... Uh, Gene's music was, was shared with me, and I listened to uh, his soloing, and I listened to uh, the Benny Goodman uh, big band. What happened was I became focused really on big band uh, era music initially. Here's this 12 or 13 or 14-year-old kid listening to big band music. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. But I really dug it. I, I dug the groove. I loved the soloing. I loved the energy. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I was... Uh, taking uh, music in, in junior high school and playing in the band. So here were trumpets and saxophones and drum sets and, and basses and pianos. And so it would seem very, very uh, contiguous. I mean, there I was listening to and playing instrumental music. And everybody uh, seemed to be focusing in that direction at that time in my life. Uh, the big band era spoke to me, and soon enough, I went from Gene uh, to Benny Goodman, to Stan Kenton, to Basie, to Ellington, to Woody Herman, to Artie Shaw, and so forth. I just kind of worked my way through the bands, and I started hearing all these different styles and approaches, and I started listening to lots of different drummers, you know, and then I came upon, of course, Buddy Rich, and I couldn't comprehend anything close to what Buddy was able to, to execute on the drums, but I was mesmerized and I thought, my God, you know, if, there's, if this, is, this is what's possible with this instrument, the sky's the limit. So living in New York was uh, tremendous because I had a chance to see Buddy and his band perform and, yeah. you know, go to a place like the West End Cafe uh, uh, up on uh, Broadway and 113th Street and listen to Joe Jones, who was still playing near the end of his life with the Councilman, wow. uh, and check out guys like uh, Elvin and Blakey and so forth. I have a, an Art Blakey story I'll share. But these were the cats that were playing, and so it wasn't difficult to be influenced by these kinds of players. Yeah, well, down here in the South, we, uh, you know, we, we have a saying saying, you know, you're, you're living at the foot of the cross kind of thing. You know, it's uh, uh, it just meaning you're, you're right there at the source. And I mean, I can only imagine being able to see Philly Joe play in, and I don't care if it's at his prime or, or at the end of his life. Just seeing the man play, I, I mean, that's got to be kind of a watershed moment for any drummer, right? Yeah, I would totally agree, Jamie. And I'll tell you an Art Blakey story. So I think I was 16 or so, and I went with a friend of mine to uh, the Village Gate, uh, no longer around, uh, on Bleecker and Thompson Street in the village. And uh, I had a chance to see uh, Art playing with his, uh, with his band. And... I wasn't familiar with his music. I was only a, a kid. And there he was, and I was just absolutely fractured listening to his band and listening to him, him perform. And uh, as soon as the, uh, the uh, uh, gig was over and uh, I was able to kind of clear my head, the next day I went and bought a, uh, 
uh, record, and of course it was Monin. And I must have listened to that uh, album uh, 900 times. <laughs> yeah. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of that sound. And what happened then was a, a, a switch uh, flipped in my brain, and it was about hard bop, and it was about uh, that whole sound and that whole era. And of course, that then led me down the the path of uh, you know listening to the cool era stuff from Miles and uh, Coltrane, uh, getting into uh, uh, all of the Max Roach and, and uh, Clifford Brown stuff, uh, and uh, you know on and on and on. Of course, Max Roach, and uh, then I have, of course have to focus on Elvin Jones and. I discover um, through uh, other uh, channels the uh, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and I discover Joe Morello. And then when I start listening to Morello's music, uh, it's another complete stop. I mean, I just could not uh, get enough of Joe Morello's drumming. I, I thought that his playing was unbelievably musical. I couldn't believe his technique. Uh, I couldn't believe his ability to play um, rhythmic uh, approaches that, uh, you know, again, I, I, at a young age, I could not even begin to understand. But these were the guys that really, really influenced me, and I uh, was completely hooked. And I have to admit, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to admit it now, but I have to admit that at the time I was a snob. And, you know, I turned my, my nose up at, at uh, contemporary pop and, and rock and, and other things that were taking place. Uh, musically, I was completely, you know, into the, into the jazz vein yeah. because that's what spoke to me. And so for better or worse, you know, th those were all of my influences musically, uh, you know, in my younger years. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's a who's who in, in jazz drumming. I mean, it really is. Um, you know, I, I came up in a different school of, you know, I, I started getting into jazz way later, you know, after I had been a drummer and, and you know, but I started on the rock path. And, you know, I, I think what's interesting is all of my favorite rock drummers were so heavily influenced by all the guys that you just named. You know, I mean, I, I was really into, you know, Ginger Baker and Mitch Mitchell and, and John Bonham and all these guys that grew up with the jazz stuff. So it really is a, a, a family tree of drumming that that's pretty, pretty incredible, really. I mean, if you think about it. Well, you know, you can apply uh, and, and I'm sure all drummers, all drummers know this. You can apply the the kinds of techniques and uh, um, soloing and and riffs and so forth in almost any style to almost any other style uh, as long as the groove is consistent and it's interpreted uh, correctly and, and meshed correctly with with uh, the music it all works you know I mean you can you can go anywhere with almost any style and if you take a look at as an example um, uh, Joe Morello's Master Studies books, uh, you know, he makes it perfectly clear that all of the work in these books applies to rock drummers, jazz drummers. It doesn't matter what style you play. I mean, the, your chops are your chops. You've got to be able to play the instrument. So it applies, and I completely agree with your comment. Yeah, so, um, I, so as a young drummer, being in New York City, at what point did you decide hey, you know, I, I'm going against the wall with this. I, you know, I'm going to try to make a career out of it. And, you know, how did that influence your your educational choices? You know, so when you were high school age, you know, playing in, you know, jazz ensemble, all those things, 
Was it at that time in your life that you said, hey, I'm really going to chase this? Or did you go to college to, I, I don't know, be an engineer or something? Well, actually, I completely did it in a, in a back-asswards way. My, my approach, even as a, as a, a young player, uh, wasn't oriented towards a career. Uh, I, I was playing with uh, uh, friends of mine that uh, I held in esteem and I thought were really superior, superior musicians. Uh, and I saw the challenges that they were having in terms of uh, work and, uh, and a career. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, if guys like this are going to have a hard time, you know, is, is this really the path I wanted to take? So my orientation, Jamie, when I was younger uh, and going into my 20s, I was really thinking much more along the lines of avocation. Uh, I loved the music. I continued practicing. I would play with, with groups. I would do some gigging and so forth. But for me, it was a love and it was a passion, but not necessarily a career. I followed a, a career in, in, other, in other areas to make a living because I didn't think I was going to <laughs> make much money playing jazz. I mean, yeah. that just didn't seem like a happening thing. And what, what ended up happening, kind of fast forward, uh, you know, another decade or so, um, it became clear to me that the passion was, was never going to extinguish relative to music. Uh, and I continued to, to practice. I started taking lessons again about 10 years later because I got seriously into it. I toured with a big band for a while, and I did a lot of uh, other gigs, uh, trio gigs and, and smaller group things. But I loved the big band thing. And... Um, uh, fast forward to 06, uh, I was living in Connecticut, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and I uh, had a chance to start playing again. And uh, I crossed paths with uh, a, a very young tenor saxophonist at the time who had just graduated from uh, West Con College. His name was John Blank. And I was really, really impressed with John's playing. I thought he was a fabulous uh, musician. And I approached him and I said, uh, you know, I, I would be interested in, in seeing if we could hook up and, and do something musically together because I think that your style really works, really, really works with my, my vision and my, my ears relative to jazz. And he said, cool. And uh, we ended up working together and playing together. And that was the genesis of me forming the Verve Jazz Ensemble. Uh, we ended up developing a following, pretty significant following in the uh, uh, Connecticut area. We were in the Danbury, Connecticut area at the time. And uh, the band uh, started to get uh, uh, hired to perform in, you know, all different kinds of venues, country clubs and other clubs in, in the, in the uh, Connecticut area. And uh, the, the name of the band, maybe you could take a moment just to, uh, to talk about this, because this is uh, always a, a question that comes up. Verve Jazz Ensemble. What, <laughs> what kind of audacity do you have to take the name Verve? The record label Verve, you know? And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Give me a chance. Let me explain. So the, the name of the band came from this extremely innocent uh, uh, perspective, uh, and here's where, it, where it, uh, it originated from. At the time, we were just a bunch of guys playing music we loved in Connecticut. I never had any vision of the band ever becoming commercially viable or recording an album or anything. Uh, and we picked the name, or I picked the name, because of my reverence for the Verve record label. I think the first album, jazz album I ever got was this Gene Krupa album, and it was on the Verve record label, right? So I totally dug 
uh, all of the music that came out of the Verve label. And so when we were playing and performing a lot of the vibe, a lot of the, the tunes and a lot of the, the, just the general feel of our group was very much influenced by the great players and the great repertoire of the Verve record label. And so it was with respect and deference to the, to the Verve label that I said, let's call it our group, the Verve Jazz Ensemble. Never thinking it would ever go anywhere further than that. <laughs> so you, that's you were, really where it came from. Yeah, you were just kind of paying tribute to, to your musical roots. And yes. Yeah. Well, so now I have... I've heard the story that, you know, I guess it was at some of these gigs that you guys were doing and, you know, presumably it was, you know, it's not disparaging in any way, but maybe a wedding reception or, you know, gigs of that ilk, you know, you're playing where you get booked, right? Um, it's my understanding that some of the patrons were like, do you have a CD? I want to buy, I want to buy a record kind of thing. Isn't that kind of how this all got rolling? We were harassed for CDs. <laughs> and, and I can honestly tell you that my answer was no, we don't have a CD. <laughs> that was the answer. Do you guys have any? And no, we don't have any CDs. So this went on for years. You know, I should have had a t-shirt that said, hi, I'm, you know, Josh Feldstein with the verb jazz ensemble. And no, we have no CDs. <laughs> And, and so what ended up happening uh, was that the, uh, the economy started to really crap out and the venues started to close and the opportunities to perform really started to wane. And I thought, okay, you know, it looks like this is the end of the line. So be it. Let's record a record. One, it'll be a, you know, a vanity project because, you know, I wanted my kids to know that their father was a jazz musician and, you know, he, he liked the music. So it's just something for the shelf. Okay. Yeah, let's and let's that, put this in a time capsule. This is, this is for prosperity's yes. sake only. Yes. Yes. And it was completely uh, a, a vanity exercise. So I worked with John uh, on the arrangements and we, you know, we really worked on it. We enjoyed it. We spent about uh, a year putting the, the charts together and really thinking through what we wanted to do. And if you take a look at the tune list for It's About Time, which is the, the, the Verb Jazz Ensemble's first album, which came out in 13, on that uh, uh, record is, is Big Swing Face, which was, of course, one of Buddy Rich's big um, uh, uh, landmark uh, 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 tunes. And so we did an arrangement of that. The long and the short of it is we ended up uh, doing the album. Terrific. We, we, we released it. And <clears throat> somehow, and I still don't know exactly how exactly this happened, but the, the, uh, the uh, uh, CD found its way into the hands of a, um, uh, a record and CD um, a promoter. And he absolutely loved the music. And he came back to us and he said he wanted to handle the group. And we said, okay, you know, fine. We yeah. didn't know. Yeah, you, don't have, you have nothing to lose at that point. Yeah, we didn't know. We said, great. You know, you like our music. That's very flattering. Okay, fine. Anyway, the album ended up uh, becoming a top five national album on Jazz Week. And we were the most shocked people in the United <laughs> States. I can assure you of that. We couldn't believe this. And uh, we said, okay, when that was done, we said, that was amazing. Okay, thank you. That's fantastic. He said, well, what's going to be your next CD? And we said, nothing. We're done. That's it. 
we did our CD. It did great. It was amazing. <laughs> We're finished. And he said, no, 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 no. What's your next project? You can't, you can't have a top five album and walk away. We said, no. Uh, okay. So we did our second album. And on that album, uh, uh, we were joined by the fabulous Peter Bernstein. And uh, uh, Pete joined us on guitar as a guest artist. And that album went top 10. And at that point, we said, wait a minute, you know, we were onto something here. You know, radio really, really likes our music. And, and this is maybe the, the, the remodeling of the group as a performance group. Yeah. And it was with that in mind that we then said, okay, you know, we're a, we're a recording band predominantly. We do perform, but not that much. And so that really was the rebirth of the Verb Jazz Ensemble as a, as a recording group. That's, I mean, that's, that's just amazing. I mean, what a, you know, tremendous testament to a being able to play and, you know, a little bit of luck in there for, for your material to find its way where it needed to be, you know, let's, let's face it. And, you know, I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, you've got a, a top five record and, you know, those royalty checks for, you know, you know, $5, $6 start rolling in and you, <laughs> you know, you, you start thinking I can make a career out of this. You know, if I do this once a year, I might have enough to, to buy a meal for my family in a decade. So <laughs> that's, you know, you really understand the business behind the jazz and you know, the old joke, how do you make a million dollars a year as a jazz musician? I you start with two. That's right. That is exactly right. Well, the way I mean, it works. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's pretty interesting to me, you know, uh, you guys just released album number six, um, which uh, again, you know, as I said at the top of the episode, I've been listening to it um, and it's, it's really good. You know, I, I, I don't just, you know, throw that around willy nilly. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the first thing that uh, as a drummer, as soon as I, you know, opened it up, the first thing I saw was drummerello, right? Went to it immediately. And, um, you know, you mentioned the, the, the late great Joe Morello earlier. Um, your take on that is just, it's awesome. I mean, it's great. So, oh, you're welcome. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the recording process. Are you guys going into, you know, a, a big pro studio to do your records or is it more of a, a project studio kind of thing? Because it sounds so good. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. Uh, let me uh, back up a little bit and talk about Drum Morello and a little bit about the band and how we uh, approach our, our projects. Please. Uh, so first of all, you know, as the leader uh, of the band, I get to, uh, to pick uh, and choose what I want, you know. Um, uh, Buddy Rich had a, had a great line long time ago. <clears throat> he was playing a gig somewhere and at the end of the first set, he stood up in front of the audience as he always did and started bantering and he said, you know, okay, anybody have any requests? We haven't had a single request all night. He said, and there was nobody who raised their hands. There was nothing. He just said, ah, forget it. I'm going to play what I want. It's my band. And he went right back behind the drums and called the next tune, Buddy Rich. So, I say, you know what, the joy of being the, the leader of the band is that I get the enjoyment of being able to pick the tune list. Yeah. So one of the things that speaks to me as, as a drummer, obviously, is to find music that is uh, deferential to uh, some of the great 
influences that I've I've been uh, uh, fortunate enough to absorb knowledge and 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 musicality from. Uh, Buddy was obviously huge. Uh, Gene Krupa, obviously, we've talked about him. And on our prior album, Connect the Dots, uh, we played uh, Disc Jockey Jump, which was a uh, a Gene Krupa. Uh, Jerry Mulligan tune from like 46 or something that I've always enjoyed. And we did a rendition of that. And so for night mode, our current album, uh, I wanted to, uh, turn my attention to, to Joe. Uh, I had a chance to study very briefly with him, uh, at the end of his life, but I've also been super fortunate to study with one of his, uh, proteges and that's John Riley. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So, so John has been my uh, instructor for years and, uh, through John, I've had a chance to, of course, learn so much. He's been an incredible influence in my playing. Uh, we'll talk more about that, but of course he studied with Morello when he was a teenager, uh, very, very intensively. So he had a lot of, uh, of Joe Morello influence and of course, he's been able to tell me all kinds of stories about Joe, and they've been all fabulous. So what happened was uh, I came across a tune that uh, Joe played at the Buddy Rich Tribute um, uh, performance. I think this was in 93 uh, or 94, Jamie, something like that. They had uh, all some of the greatest drummers in the world uh, uh, coming together, all different styles, playing with the Buddy Rich Big Band, and it was a, a tribute to Buddy. And uh, Morello played, uh, and, and the tune that he played was Drum Morello. Well, I listened to this tune the first time, and I just laughed. I thought it was just such classic Joe. His chops were amazing, even though I think he was probably in his late 70s when he played it. And the band sounded great. I loved the tune, and I just said, boy, that's so much fun. So I, I took the tune to John Riley, and I said, John, we've got to talk about this. You know, we've got to uh, help me transcribe some of these licks. I want to understand some of this stuff. And we spent an entire lesson one day. I remember sitting in his studio. We spent about two hours going over the, uh, the, uh, the video. And we were just working on transcription stuff. And it's like, I love that lick. How does he do that? What is this? What's the sticking? How we, we, we did all that. So that was such a tremendous influence. I then took time over the next you know, few years and just worked on the stuff. I would just work on the, the, the various uh, uh, components of the, of the solos and so forth. And Jamie, here's the thing that's, that's absolutely like a, a teaching moment that I'll share which is that there were a lot of things that, that Joe was doing in his soloing at the time I could not even come close to doing. So what I needed to do was take five steps backwards and start working on all kinds of foundational things that I needed to build up to get to the next step to build up to get to the next step to build up to eventually get to the point where I could slowly begin to execute some of what Joe was playing in his soloing. Yeah. It took me a while. But that was the exercise. And so after I had gotten to the point where it started to come together, uh, I'd reached uh, a level of of, uh, practice and competence, at least in this uh, particular uh, area, where I said, you know, I'd love to try to take a crack at this. And that was where the the impetus to to, uh, record Drummarello came from. I will say, though, that because we are a recording group and we think about radio, 
in, in, in the way we create our arrangements, Joe went on and played, you know, a lengthy, a lengthy solo, just kind of an open solo. And the band came back at the end. We didn't do that. You know, we kept it to like, I think a couple of 32 bar solos and, you know, a lot of back and forth. So we did, we did trim it down so that the tune, you know, was, was manageable for radio. But uh, that aside, that was really the, uh, the genesis of, of uh, Drum Morello. And I would encourage everybody to check out Joe's uh, performance because it's classic. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I immediately, uh, as soon as I saw it, I knew what the, the inference was, you know, the reference to, to Joe. And as I listened to it, the thing that was particularly, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, the thing that stuck out to me is that your style was very true to Joe's. And I, it's very hard for me to explain it if you don't understand Joe Morello and, and how he played. But it was always just super technically proficient. Um, it, but at the same time, it was not robotic. It you, you know what I mean? It was very musical, but yet the, the, the technical expertise that he was displaying was always, you know, at, at the top of the game kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous way of incorporating the, the, uh, uh, the essence of, of what Joe Morello uh, brought to the, to the drum set. He was an amazing technician. I mean, his chops were, were just, you know, world class. I think he was the number one jazz drummer in the world for like 10 or 12 straight years uh, at his prime. And at the same time, his musicality was, was fabulous. If you listen to his performing uh, in, in his Dave Brubeck years, he was a, a drummer who enhanced the, the musicality of the quartet. He wasn't a guy that was all about listen to me. That wasn't Joe. He was, he was not that kind of guy. You know, he'd be the first to say that Buddy Rich, you listen to his solo, Buddy, Buddy brings the house down. That wasn't Joe's approach, but yet, you know, there are, there are YouTube recordings of, of Joe soloing that are breathtaking, yeah. absolutely breathtaking. So, you know, his approach to, to music was being an absolutely fabulous, fabulous technician, but the musicality was just as important. And, and as a musician myself, I, I listened to the playing of guys like uh, Philly Joe Jones and Art Blakey, uh, and I was highly influenced by 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 those kinds of of, of uh, drummers. Uh, go back to the beginning of, of jazz drumming and listen to guys like Joe Jones, Papa Joe Jones. Uh, you know, th these are guys who are about swinging a band. Uh, they're not about showing off the chops. You know, you got to have the chops, but you got to swing the band. Right. So as a musician, I also played when I was younger, Jamie, I played alto sax for, for years and I had been exposed to other uh, instruments, obviously. And so I think not only as a, as a timekeeper, but I also think as a musician. And so I, I listened to the, to, to the music of, of a, of a, uh, a Morello uh, and it, it really speaks to me, or a Jack DeJanet, for that, for that matter. You listen to guys like Roy Haynes or Jeff Hamilton as a, as a, as a brush master, yeah. uh, Ed Thigpen. Now, today you listen to guys like Bill Stewart or Antonio Sanchez or Vinnie Caliuta. You know, all of these guys are just, their musicality is just, it's off the Richter scale. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're spot on. I mean, all those guys are just uh, amazing. And you know, I think I had this conversation with the great Bernie Dressel, who is, you know, also has a fantastic big band that he plays with. 
But typically when you hear about a drummer led big band, you expect to put on the record and hear, you know, 48 minutes of drum soloing and, you know, 12 minutes of really good horn section, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the first thing you think of. Your records are not that way. I mean, you, you do take your spots, no doubt, but you let your band do what they do as well. So, you know, I mean, I, I just, what I'm trying to get across is if you think this is a, a drummer, um, you know, just exercise in look at me, look at me. That's that's not what you guys are about. Well, I, I really appreciate the the, the comments. Uh, I, I completely agree. Obviously, as a as a leader of the group, um, I, I am trying always to be very very uh, balanced in terms of giving my amazing musicians a chance to step into the into the limelight. They they deserve that type of recognition. I've played with Tatum Greenblatt on all of our albums. Tatum is a fabulous, fabulous uh, trumpeter and flugelhorn uh, player. Uh, we've mentioned John uh, Blank on tenor. Finally got John to play some soprano. Uh, we have um, Alexa Tarantino on uh, flute and um, uh, alto sax, uh, Will- Willie Applewhite on trombone, and uh, I'm joined in the, in the rhythm section by uh, Steve Einerson <clears throat> on piano and also... Um, uh, Matt Ostreicher, who played a, a guest tune on the album, uh, and on bass, um, Elias Bailey. And of course, Elias also tours with uh, Freddie Cole and uh, Renee Marie and, and others. So, I mean, the quality that, of the musicians that I'm, I'm blessed to be able to perform with means that uh, everybody has to have a chance to, to show their, their abilities. And, and we try, when we construct our um, tune list, to also keep in mind the listener's ear. <clears throat> and, and by that, I'd like to, to explain, you know, as a, as a listener of music, one of the things that uh, I try very uh, hard to, to uh, represent in our music is variation of sound uh, from uh, tune to tune on an album. Yeah. Because it's difficult as a listener, especially if you're not in a, a really um, a seasoned jazz listener, uh, it's easy to get ear fatigue if the second and the third tracks sound pretty similar <laughs> to the first track. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? I, I do. And you took the words right out of my mouth. You know, I, I just think that that a lot of jazzers miss the mark with with what you're talking about right now. There are some jazz albums that I put on and it's great for the first 10 minutes and then I'm just like so tired of hearing the same thing explored over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and I will say that the technical ability of these musicians is world class. But as a listener, if you're not oriented towards listening to a, a seven-minute solo and you can't uh, appreciate the, the uh, integration of uh, improvisation between the players um, with a seasoned ear, it gets it gets to be quote crazy jazz and people end up turning it off. Uh, and, and my personal opinion is that, uh, we, we, we know that, uh, jazz is not the most listened to, to, 
of music in the, in the United States anymore. You know, you and I are talking about jazz and maybe 2% of the population dig this music. But the reality is that when we play uh, the VJE's music to non-jazz audiences, they enjoy the music, even if they don't know who uh, Max Roach was yeah. or, or Benny Goodman or whatever. That the music speaks to them melodically. It speaks to them rhythmically. They enjoy it. It's it's upbeat. It makes them feel good, and <clears throat> that's what we're going for. So when we construct a tune list, the Verb Jazz Ensemble thinks in terms of variation. And if you listen to Night Mode as an example, from tune to tune, there are stark stark differences in the structure and the and the instrumentation. Uh, and the voicing of each tune. And we also take the extra step of expanding and contracting our septet so that some of the, the tunes are full septet tunes that imitate, replicate even a big band sound. Others scale down to trio. And then we have a, a series of variations of quintet, uh, some with a traditional uh, tenor and trumpet, some with trombone and, and flute, they vary. So we're, we're mindful of trying to vary the instrumentation in addition to the pacing, the tone, the tempo, the groove, so that the, the listener's ear stays fresh. Well, you know, as a, you know, a, a jazz novice, I, I will just say on behalf of all jazz, you know, <laughs> novice folks, Thank you for doing that because, I mean, you know, and the way I judge jazz music in my, you know, primitive rock and roll brain is, is it danceable? You know what I mean? And there, there are some forms of jazz music that that's not what it's about. And I think there's room for all different kinds of approaches to that. But when I put on your record, I immediately go to a place of you could put this on at any dinner party, cocktail party. You 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 could just put this on anywhere and people would enjoy the ambiance of it. You know, Thank so you. you're you're welcome. And, you know, Thank I think you. I think our crowd is, you know, whether they're into jazz or rock or country or, or whatever the case may be, is the drumming good? And, you know, without a doubt, you certainly pass that test. So um, kudos to you guys for having such a great record. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Let me switch gears just a little bit. I'm curious to know where was the, the record actually cut at? Talk to me a little bit about the studio approach, because, again, sonically, it's it's very pleasing. Well, thank you. We got sidetracked and didn't get a chance to answer that. I'm, I'm glad you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no problem. This is a great conversation. <laughs> Yanking me back to that one. So this is a really interesting uh, piece. So we recorded Firehouse 12 Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, and uh, I would certainly urge uh, anybody in, in this part of the country to uh, consider working at Firehouse 12. Uh, this is not a paid plug, let me tell you. It's just a fabulous place. And we've recorded all of our albums there. 
so it's a, it's a first class uh, first class studio, and uh, they have some unbelievable equipment. Uh, the, the way our band works is really kind of uh, uh, unique. We've developed a certain pattern here, and that is that I'll work with uh, John and Tatum and one or other members of the band, depending upon the charts, and we'll take three or four or five months to put together the, the charts for the, for the next project. I'll start working on a tune list. We'll start figuring out who's going to be working on what. Uh, there'll be iterative work between me and, and the, and the uh, co arrangement or, or a co-composer, uh, and we'll put together all of the, the charts. Uh, we'll then allow everybody to uh, marinate a little bit of the music on their own, and we will have as a band a, a rehearsal or two, if we're lucky, because everybody's so busy. And then we will go into the studio and we will record our album. And typically we will record the album in a couple of days, and uh, that's our pattern. Okay, so primarily live on the floor uh, takes, or do you go in as as separate units? Uh, how do you approach that? The band uh, plays as a group always. Uh, the horns are usually set up in a big room. Uh, the drums and piano, uh, excuse me, drums and bass uh, are going to be in ISO booths usually. Uh, piano is going to be in the in the in the large room with the horns, and it'll all be sectioned off with uh, you know sound batting and so forth. Uh, when we've recorded trio albums, and I think the uh, album before, two albums back, uh, called Swing Anova, uh, that was fundamentally a trio album because I wanted to do one of those as well. Uh, and uh, that we all recorded in one room, obviously. Sure. But when we record as a septet, it's uh, uh, a lot easier sonically to be able to uh, separate out uh, parts of the rhythm section. Uh, so if you ever have to fix something, uh, it's so much <laughs> yeah. easier. Otherwise, it becomes a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, I've been asked to do you know punch-ins and stuff, and and cymbals always cause an issue. And if you're in the room with a guitar amp, you know, yeah. So I, I get that. It's very sonically pleasing and and very well put together. Um, so tell everybody where they can actually go out and grab the record. We want to put a plug in for that and hopefully sell a few copies here. Well, thank you. CD baby is currently the place to, uh, to visit, to download, uh, a, an, uh, a digital version or, or purchase a, a, uh, a mechanical, uh, copy of the CD, an actual physical CD. Uh, it, it should be available on Amazon and iTunes. I don't believe as of the moment that it is, there was some type of, uh, a, a technical glitch that's being re resolved. I'm not sure when this is going to air. So I would say that if you can't find it on iTunes or, or, you know, the usual places, visit CD Baby and you should be able to download the, uh, the music. Yes. And kids, this is a friendly tip. Anytime one of our guests says, go to CD Baby, and it should be on iTunes and Amazon and all that, go buy it from CD Baby. The artist gets a bigger cut at CD Baby, always. So so don't, don't go to Spotify, go to CD Baby. That's where you want to go. So I, I'll do that hard work for you, Josh. Uh, Thank you, sir. You're you're quite welcome. Um, CD Baby does a really good job with that, and you know they they don't keep ninety eight percent of <laughs> of the fee, unlike some of the other larger companies. So, uh, <laughs> with that being said, I I do want to ask 
you were talking about the the composition process and you compose with other members of the ensemble. I've asked Bill Stewart this. I, you know, I've asked Peter Erskine this. I've, I've asked just some, you know, legendary names in jazz. When you're composing, do you wear two different hats? Do you compose from a, a drum perspective and a melodic perspective or do you simply go from a song structure and melody perspective? Because, and the reason I ask, if I were composing, I would always be thinking about what am I going to play as a drummer, not necessarily what is the song going to be. Right. Well, uh, I will flip it around and say that I typically compose melodically. So that's usually the way things enter my consciousness. Uh, it'll be a melodic uh, 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 experience. And as the melodic experience matures uh, or ripens as it kind of goes along, uh, in the, in the background, I'm thinking about, uh, where and how, uh, rhythmically, uh, the, um, the two components fit together. Uh, so they don't quite happen simultaneously for me. It's, it's a melodic process first, and then the groove uh, uh, fits into it. Um, and sometimes uh, the groove changes my approach to the melodic um, a process, uh, but often it's simply a melodic process. First, uh, I get that out of my brain, I begin to think about it, and then I can kind of back into what I think would be the most um, musically pleasing uh, support uh, rhythmically for the, for the melody. Gotcha. Well, and, and, you know, that makes sense. I just find it infinitely, um, you know, entertaining to hear how different people approach it. You know, um, one, one of the great young jazzers, Brandon Goodwin, uh, Bees Bees is his group. You know, we talked about this, you know, kind of at length in his interview on the show. And I think, I think rock guys or, or country guys or pop guys or whatever, always approach it from the rhythmic standpoint, whereas, you know, guys that are well-versed in jazz always go from a melodic standpoint first, or at least, you know, my uh, totally non-scientific polling has shown that anyway. So I just find it interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is that there, there are, uh, for example, we did um, uh, a rendition of Stan Kenton's intermission riff on uh, our prior album, Connected Dots, and uh, that was a number one uh, album on Jazz Week uh, when that came out, uh, uh, and it was really well received. And uh, one of the uh, the tunes uh, again uh, on that album was a Stan Kenton classic, Intermission Riff, uh, and that's a, that's a, just a straight ahead swinger. Uh, we played that. I laid that down to a Bernard Purdy shuffle. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Like okay, but we're we, we want to play the tune, but we're not just playing the tune. We got to do something with that <laughs> right, tune, right? Right. So in that exercise, it was a it was a rhythmic approach to reinterpret <clears throat> uh, a, a previous uh, approach to the to the classic. So having said that, uh, the melodic. Uh, thing happens first in terms of original compositions when it comes to re imagining uh, classics or cover tunes or standards, uh, I frequently will think rhythmically about the, uh, the, uh, the tune first. 
So it, it flips around the other way. Absolutely. Well, I, again, just a fantastic record. I encourage all of our listeners to go out and, and grab a copy of it. Cause I think, I think our crowd will really enjoy it. So, uh, they, they should all definitely, uh, check, check it out. So, uh, night mode by the verve jazz ensemble. Now, this would not be a drum-related conversation if we didn't geek out on gear for at least just a moment or two. So, um, you know, we're two drummers. Let's let's talk a little bit about gear. Um, talk to me a little bit about your approach to gear. Do you view drums as just a tool, something to use, or are you... I can only have a 1973, you know, Gretsch 10 inch. T- I, I don't I don't know what <laughs> what your story is, but talk to us about it. I'm a really, really modest guy when it comes to uh, my instrument. I play a Gretsch Catalina kit. Uh, I have two of them uh, there. There's these are the small uh, Catalinas. And I have um, become uh, a Gretsch Catalina guy for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the kit sounds great. Number two, it's a small kit. It's easy to move around. It fits into a, a studio setting very easily. And, uh, you know, there, there's enough stuff to, to uh, uh, carry around as a drummer without making your, your, your job even harder. <laughs> right so I, I have found that, you know, oh, you know, I think about getting this amazing, you know, DW kit and spending $7,000 and this and that. <laughs> and then I think to myself, who am I kidding? This is fine. You can play the Catalina kit. It sounds great. Put some new skins on it and tune it correctly. And it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, Stop. That, yeah, that's... That's the good thing about uh, about us drummers is it's just a wood cylinder with a, <laughs> with a couple of mylar heads bolted yeah. to it, really. Um, exactly. You know, um, what about cymbals? I know jazz guys, uh, you know, I, I'm a cymbal fanatic, you know, even even in rock settings, you know, I've got a different cymbal for every different kind of session I could ever play. But, you know, are, are you um, tell me what you're a fan of? What do you play? <laughs> Well, I, I am a, uh, a Zildjian cymbal uh, 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 guy when it comes to my ride. Uh, I found a ride cymbal many years ago. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old Zildjian. It's a heavy, I think it's a 22-inch ride, stu- uh, stage ride. And that is my signature ride cymbal. And I will, I will keep that going, uh, uh, you know, as long as I'm playing. That's it. Uh, my um, uh, alternate ride I will switch out. And so I have a series of uh, additional rides depending upon the tune. And one of the things that I I, uh, frequently uh, play around with, Jamie, is I will alter the cymbal structure based upon the song. I always change my cymbal uh, setup uh, to embellish the the sound, the, mu- the musicality of, of each individual song on the album. So my cymbal setup is really not the same for every any two tunes on, on night mode. It changes all the time. Uh, other than the hi-hat cymbals obviously staying and the, and the ride uh, typically staying uh, uh, st- stable. I'll switch out crash cymbals. I'll switch out my second ride. I have a pang cymbal that I, that I use. I, I get a lot of value out of the pang, especially in Latin yeah. uh, for hits. Uh, and also just to embellish the, the sound. I have a pasty uh, ride that I use as an alternate. I have a K symbol that I will use for more contemporary uh, stuff that needs a deeper, richer kind of a tick, 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 tick kind of a sound. So I'll work in, in, in different kind of sound uh, uh, modalities based upon the song 
and what the song calls for. Uh, you know, I even have a, um, a trash uh, uh, symbol that I'll use for, for some fusion-oriented stuff if, if it calls for it. So, you know, I'm, I'm very liberal in terms of switching out my, my symbol uh, uh, construction because I think that the symbols can add so much to the musicality of, of the song and, and to, the, to the listener. And so I'm, I'm very conscious of, of, of that approach with the symbols. Gotcha. Now, are you a uh, are you a pawn shop stalker? But being in New York, I would imagine you know if you're if you're into vintage gear, there's probably some stuff to be found up there. Are you are you a snare drum junkie, or or you're just good with what you got? Uh, I have a an orchestral snare uh, that I I got many years ago that I really really like. Uh, I'm good with the with the kit uh, as we talked about. I'm always on the hunt for the next symbol. Uh, I, I will tell you though that it's a really really challenging exercise to find symbols, as you probably can appreciate. Yeah. You know, symbols are really really personal personal uh, selections, and you know I'll listen to a uh, hundred or more symbols and and not like any of them. So you know you got to find that right symbol that's got just the right sound and now you know now you're getting into splitting hairs but as as drummers you know we we uh have a particular sound that's embedded deep in our mind and until you hear that sound you keep searching for it yes yeah truer words have never been spoken and you know somebody said to me once uh said you know do you know why the guitarist is playing a blue guitar instead of a red guitar because the blue guitar was on sale they don't care you know it's <laughs> <laughs> that's funny but now when it comes to symbols man i mean yeah. it's just it's just not that way you you you're playing on a symbol that you don't like your day is not a good day yeah that's I, it, very very true and you know i i did my searching for oh 20 plus years until i came across what what works for me and it just it happens to be dream symbols out of canada and i have yet to hear one of theirs that's like that i would say no i'll pass i'll never never hit that kind of thing you know what i mean so it's when, when you find what you're looking for it's that aha holy grail moment well, I wrote it down. I'm going to go check out Dream Symbols. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I need to check out Dream Symbols now. Yes, you do. Um, if, if you like that old K sound, uh, they've, they've got a whole line, you know, the, the Bliss line. Um, I, very, very uh, old K-esque. And I just, I love them. So uh, definitely check them out. I'll, I'll give them a free plug here on the show. Now, um, yeah, for sure. And I'll talk to you a little bit about it, uh, offline as well. But, um, one thing that, that I do want to get out here, I think this has been a fantastic conversation and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and, and so have I. Thank I'm you. sure our crowd has as well. Um, but we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice to, to take out there in, in our musical or, or drumming lives um, you've been at this for a while. Share with us a good piece of advice that, that we should all follow. Great question. And I have a two-part answer. How's that? That's perfect. You know, if you, okay. I'll give you bonus points if you can come up with three. <laughs> oh, boy. The pressure's on. Yeah, for sure. Let me start with what I would consider to be a really, really important 
insight that took me way too long to figure out. And I would like to shorten the learning curve for many, many, many younger drummers who uh, are listening to our discussion today. And that is learn how to practice. And what occurred to me is that if I wanted to become a better drummer, I had to work on what I did not do well. Yeah. That had to be the focus of my practice, not continuing to play what I can play with muscle memory and with some degree of, of, of energy and vitality and confidence, but to look honestly at the parts of my drumming that weren't good in my view. And for me, it was my left hand, it was independence, it was more complicated rhythmic structures. Whatever it is that you know as a drummer is your weak spot or spots, where you'll have many, many, many weak spots, those are the things to work on slowly and patiently. And when you fall in love with practicing what you can't play well, your playing will suddenly become much, much better. And everything changes. And this was something that I I really didn't discover until, you know, 20 years later than I really should have. And I wish that I had had learned that lesson. So that would be really kind of my, my piece of uh, of, of, of advice or, or guidance that I could offer other drummers that I hope would be helpful. Um, the, the other thing I, I will say to, to, my, to my jazz drumming colleagues is here's an exercise that uh, my instructor, John Riley, shared with me years ago that literally changed my playing. And um, what it was, was he said, are you familiar with Stick Control, the book by George Lawrence Stone? Well, just about everybody's heard of the, the, the stick control book. I think it came out in what, Jamie, 1935? Oh, it was a you long, know? long time ago. Yeah, right? So the, the thing's been out for whatever it is, 85 years ago. Uh, Stone wrote this book, and just George Lawrence Stone was Joe Morello's teacher. I don't know if people even you know, heard of uh, Stone as a teacher of, of, of Morello, but there it is. So John takes out the book and he puts it on the, the music stand and he says, okay, let's work on this. And he turns to page five, which is the very first page in stick control. And there you see a series of two bar eighth note exercises, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, 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 left, left, and so forth and so on. I was like, okay, that's easy enough. He said, no, 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 you're not going to play it as written. Here's the way you're going to play this page. You're going to play a ride groove on the right hand. You're going to play two and four on the hi-hat. Ding, 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 ding. And then while you're doing that, the right hand is going to be played by the bass drum and the left hand is going to be played as written. Oh, wow. I said, you're kidding me, right? No, no, no. He's watch this. So he's playing ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding. And it's right, left, right, left. So it's bass drum, snare drum, bass drum, snare drum, eighth notes. Do get to 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 left hand and then right hand. He does this and he goes down the whole page. There's, there's 24 of these two bar exercises. Well, I'm like, oh, that's impossible. I'll never be able to. That's ridiculous. Well, P.S., I practiced this. I think I started at 60 beats a minute. I could barely do it. (laughs) And I worked on this exercise for three solid years. 
And I got to the point where I could play the whole page at about 200 beats per minute. And it allowed me to develop my right foot, my bass drum playing as literally another limb so that I could comp with my right foot as competently as I could comp with my left hand. And it transformed my playing as a bop drummer, as a jazz drummer. It was one of the most valuable uh, exercises. And to this day, as a warm-up, I will run through the page and I'll take five or ten minutes. And it's just a foundational exercise for me. So I would encourage everybody to get a copy of Stick Control, go to the first page and, and run through it this way. And I said to, to John when I was doing these exercises, I said, so tell me, John, what do we have to do? What's on the next page? You know, where do we go from here? He said, you don't need the rest of the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I, you know, I, I will just say this, you know, my, my experience with, with Stick Control um, has been amazing value in what you learn there, you know, it's a, a lot of younger drummers don't realize how important those things are, you know, and, and the amount of value that you're getting from a book that is, you know, getting close to a hundred years old, as you stated, um, it's pretty amazing really that, that a guy that just approached it from, from that one little slice of drumming um, to see, how much you can learn and grow in that is, uh, it's phenomenal. It really is. It is. And you know, it takes innovators like, like Morello and, and the John Riley's of the world and the Peter Erskins of the world, uh, to be able to unpack the, the miracle of, of, um, innovation that you can pull out of this stuff. You know, let's face it, the drums have not been around very long. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively new instrument. It's a bunch of stuff that people put together. Uh, you know, the trap set, you know, go back 80, 90 years. It was a, a guy played the bass drum, a guy played the cymbal, there was a snare drummer, and now it's become this contraption. Yeah. So, you know, we're really still trying to figure out what can you do with this instrument? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, your advice isn't lost on me. And sometimes I forget that I need to work on the things that I suck at. You know, <laughs> you know, we all like to work on the things that we do well. And when you work on the things that you don't do so well, it's very easy to become discouraged and, you know, be like the little guy on Sesame Street. I'll never get it. Never, never, never. You know what I mean? And when you when you push yourself, that's when you start seeing those leaps and bounds of growth and progress as a player. So very well-spoken piece of advice, Josh. Thank you. Pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Josh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, you're welcome on this program anytime. Um, it sounds like you guys are on about a 12 month album cycle. So, uh, if, uh, if you have a, a new project, uh, for next year, please let us know. We'd love to review it and have you on to talk about it. Um, as a final parting word for you, tell everybody where they can find you guys via social media, et cetera. If anybody has questions. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it's been my sincere pleasure, Jamie. I've loved our discussion today. You're, the work that you're doing is fabulous, and the guests that you have on uh, the Drum Shuffle uh, are world class. And and you know, this is a tutorial 
for anybody interested in, in, in this instrument and all forms of music. So I, I, I want to just say uh, congratulations for an absolutely fabulous product Thank and uh, continue continue your amazing work. Um, the, the Verve Jazz Ensemble's website is verve-jazz.com. And uh, at our website is access to our, our social uh, uh, platforms and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, as well as videos of the band. Uh, there are a number of videos that I've done with uh, all the members of the band. Uh, there's live performance videos. There's all kinds of stuff, reviews and calendar and so forth. So uh, that would be the one-stop place for uh, more information about the VJE and uh, Night Mode. Fantastic. Well, Josh, again, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have you back anytime. Keep us posted and uh, we'll, we'll send some folks your way for sure. Thank you, Jamie. All right, man. Have a great evening. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode 77 of the Drum Shuffle. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We just simply don't have a show without all of you guys listening week in and week out. Uh, it really means a lot to me that, that this show... Um, means a lot to you. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, as always, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in. Uh, it helps us more than you'll know. And we do have some great interviews coming up that you're not going to want to miss. I promise you that. Uh, many thanks to Josh Feldstein for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on and talk about his career and the Verve Jazz Ensemble. Uh, I, I can't say it enough. Go pick up one of their records. They're just awesome. Truly, they are. Next week, I'm going to be joined by an old dear friend of mine uh, by the name of Kent Auberly. Uh Kent has spent uh, countless years just doing tremendous drumming out there, um, probably most recognizable for playing with Christian Bush uh, from the band Sugarland. Uh, so we're going to have Kent next week. It's always good to catch up with, with an old drum brother like Kent, uh, so you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, we do answer every single email that we get. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where to send those emails. Uh, our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Uh, I do want to have one little personal note here on September 28th. Uh, of this year. Uh, for those of you that are in the central Kentucky area, my band Funnel will be playing our first gig since 2008 at Country Boy Brewing Tap Room here in Georgetown, Kentucky. So we're really excited about that and hope to see some familiar faces out there. And if you're not a familiar face, come up to me at the show, say, hey, I listened to the drum shuffle. I'll have something for you. So I uh, appreciate it if anybody can get out to that gig. It's always a special occasion when Funnel gets together and does a show. It's our first one in about 11 years. So uh, I look forward to seeing you guys there. As always, thanks so much for listening. We, we just simply can't do this show without you. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. 